All right. Uh, you'll see our scripture passage in your bulletin. And while you're turning there, let me just remind you that uh, we have started a new uh, series after Easter uh, about the implications of the resurrection. Uh, that oftentimes when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're focused uh, in two areas. We were either focused in the past, uh, and you can hear a lot about the historical validity that Jesus actually rose uh, from the dead for historical evidence and all that kind of stuff. We're focused on, on, on Easter, something that happened 2,000 years ago. Or we, when we talk about the resurrection, we're talking about, yes, just as Jesus rose from the dead, we too are going to raise from the dead as Christians, and we too will receive new bodies. And so we're focused on uh, a, a period of time out into the future. But the implications of the resurrection that we want to talk about uh, last week, this week, and a few weeks to come is, what does that resurrection mean for you and for me today? Uh, in Christian circles, we know what uh, the cross does for us today. Uh, much better than we know what the resurrection does for us today. So um, that's why we're doing uh, this series. So let me pray and we'll get started. Father in heaven, uh, we do need you. Uh, Lord, if uh, uh, we can look at your word, Lord, it can be clear. um, It can be relevant. um, It can even be biblical, uh, yet be devoid of your power. And Lord, we, I pray uh, that you uh, would bring power to this message tonight uh, so that you uh, might produce fruit in us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, one of the great things about having kids is watching them discover a whole new world. When you think about kids, uh, I, I, I feel like I, when I hear people talk about kids, you talk about their innocence, talk about their, uh, their naivete their um, candor, uh, their passion for fun. And that's all right. It's all true. It's good. But something else that's really stuck out to me about children, uh, at least this week as, I was, as I've been with Brooks, our two-year-old, um, is their unbounding curiosity. Uh, Brooks moves throughout his days, and he's always wondering, what are things for? What are things for? This week we were... Uh, you know, especially when it's 36 degrees and rainy. I uh, can't believe that just a few days ago it was 40 degrees warmer and not rainy, but we were outside during that time. And last summer, Brooks was, you know, around one, and he couldn't really do the swing set in our backyard. There's really nothing on there for him. The, the, the slide was way too big for him. He, and now he can climb up the ladder to get on top of the place where the swing goes, or where the slide goes down. And um, I saw him up there. I kind of helped him get the ladder a little bit. He mostly did it himself. And then he's standing at the top, and he, you would think, I mean, he just watched his sisters go down there. And I, as I'm watching, I could tell he's not necessarily scared. He's just wondering, what in the world is this thing about? Here's this long yellow thing that I'm sitting on the top of. And I, I knew that it, he was going to go way too fast and do it by himself. So I kind of, because he, you know, he would slide down and just hit his head as he comes. He doesn't know to like lean forward at the end, you know. So I, I kind of held him as he comes down. And he's just grinning with glee because he's discovered that slides are for sliding. Uh, yesterday, I fed him, uh, may, I don't know if Jenna's giving him blackberries or not, but um, I gave him his first blackberry. And it was hilarious because... He looked at it. <laughs> he just held it in his hand and kept doing this to it. And uh, it, I'm sure it looked and felt like nothing he'd ever experienced before. This thing was soft and kind of bumpy. He probably knew it was food because he was sitting in his high chair when I gave it to him. 
But you could tell that his curiosity was going full tilt. He put in his mouth and he started smiling and he smiled real big, which meant he liked it, which is really no surprise. The kid's enormous. Um, <laughs> but he started doing his little sign language for more, which is this. He started going like this. Uh, give me some more blackberries. Uh, he learned what blackberries are really all about. Slides are for sliding and blackberries are meant to be enjoyed and eaten. And sadly, the older we get, the more our curiosity is squashed. The unknown becomes very scary. We don't pursue the unknown with this kind of childlike curiosity because our known worlds are so very full. Another reason I don't think we pursue our childlike curiosity is because technology gives us, these advances give us answers to why everything exists. But I wonder, if I asked you or even the average person in Lexington, what is your life for I wonder what kind of answers I'd get. See, we know that blackberries are to be eaten, and we know that slides are for sliding, but why is answering the much weightier question of what is our life for so difficult? Our cultural moment, I think, makes this really difficult. The culture tells us that we're unable to define life. We're told that we must define life on our own terms and exclude God's revelation from our answer. We're told that it's intellectually invalid for finite beings to speak with any kind of certainty about the truth. And all this leaves us directionless. It leaves us purposeless. It makes answering the question, what is our life for, very, very difficult. But Jesus, on the other hand, he told us the meaning of life. And after all, he's got the right to tell us the meaning of life because he's the one who made us. See, we don't discover what life is about. Jesus reveals it to us. And when he reveals it to us, he does it just like every other good teacher that you've ever had. He makes things very simple that, that appear very complex. And that's what we see in Matthew 22. Let's read it together. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him, Jesus, a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The word of the Lord. So from this passage, we're going to see uh, love defined. Uh, love broken and love rightly ordered. Love defined, love broken, and love rightly ordered. So love defined. Uh, you see this lawyer, he comes up to Jesus and he asks Jesus a question. He says, hey, which of your 613 commandments, the 613 commandments of the Old Testament, uh, holds the most weight? And Jesus recites to him Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. We read them earlier. These two verses, uh, both back in Jesus' day and today and uh, in the Jewish religion, they're called, it's called the Shema. And the reason it's called a Shema is because the first word in the commandment is the Hebrew word Shema, which means to hear. It starts out with hear, O Israel. And this is likely the very first verse that any Jewish child would have learned because every morning uh, you would wake up and you'd recite this verse. Every night when you went to bed, you would say this verse. It's very familiar territory. The lawyer wouldn't have been like, oh, duh, I've never heard that one before. Thanks, Jesus. 
But then Jesus goes on and he says something much more. He says, uh, loving God and loving neighbor isn't, doesn't just sum up the whole law, doesn't just sum up all the commandments. Jesus says it sums up the whole Old Testament. That's why in verse 40, when it says law and the prophets, the law and the prophets is shorthand for the entire Old Testament. And in verse 40, there's a very interesting word. It says, uh, verse, it, in this version, it says, depend. Uh, other versions say, hang on. It's an odd word. It would be the same word that you would use to talk about a door being hung on hinges. The door is dependent on the hinges in order for it to function. So our understanding of the law, of the Old Testament, of the Bible, and even your life only makes sense when loving God and loving neighbor serves as the cornerstone of your life. That's what that word depends mean. But it's hard for us to get our minds wrapped around what love really is. Because the love that the Bible talks about and love in our culture are so, so very different. Uh, love in our culture usually means an emotional attachment to something. Uh, oftentimes even in an erotic sense, like romance or sex. But love also means in our culture a, just a general fondness for something. Something that brings us pleasure. Something like a UK win. Uh, something like barbecue. Something like a clean house or nice weather. And none of this is wrong. To say love is, is, is just used in an erotic sense or in a general fondness, those aren't wrong. It's just very thin. And it's not very demanding. But love in the scriptures is something very, it's far more comprehensive. Because at a baseline, the way the Bible talks about human beings is that we are lovers. And being a lover is fundamental to being a human. One cannot say, I'm not a very loving person at least from a scriptural point of view. What they might be saying is, I'm not a very emotionally gushy person, which is okay. But that doesn't mean, just because you're not a very emotionally gushy person doesn't mean that you are not a lover. See, love is what the heart does. But again, the heart cannot be confused as the seat of emotions. It's just this emotional attachment. When the Bible talks about heart, it's talking about the central control center for your life. The heart is what dominates your emotions. The heart is what directs your thoughts. And the heart is the dynamic of all of our actions. So whatever is the object of your love, whatever you give your hearts to, you necessarily love comprehensively. You love it with your emotions, with your thoughts, with your time, with your money, and with your behavior, your will. So do you want to know what you love? What does your mind go to whenever your mind is at rest? When it's free to wonder, what do you think about? These days, I'm thinking about uh, who's going to be on UK's roster next year. I'm thinking about uh, who the Bengals are going to draft here in about a month. I'm a glutton for punishment. Um, but what do you think about? What, what do you have the most intense knee-jerk reactions about? What do you spend your money on? If you were to look through your bank statements, what, what, what does it say about what you love? How do you invest your time? When you follow all these trails, you will find the object of your love. You will find what your heart is set on. So what Jesus is saying here is that our life depends on whether we love God in this comprehensive manner and if we love our neighbor as ourself. Because if you do, you're intending, you're doing what your heart is intended to do. But if you don't, then your life's going to fall off the hinges.
See, slides are for sliding, blackberries are for eating, and people are for loving God and neighbor. That's quite the challenge for us. Because to love God with every bit of every capacity of our lives is not an easy feat. Nor is this an abstract command. This is, an, this is a concrete responsibility that requires our full commitment. So you see, this is love defined. We've established that. But why does Jesus have to command this from us? Well, it's because loving God and loving others as ourselves, this just isn't natural for us. We either love the wrong things or we love the right things wrongly. And this is what we see with a lawyer. This is love broken. Jesus, uh, in Matthew 22, if we were to see the whole passage, it breaks down really easily. Matthew's doing something very intentional as he's putting before us uh, three different religious groups. You have the Sadducees and you've got two different groups of Pharisees. And they come to Jesus and each of them ask a different question. One asks a question about if a man dies having no children, uh, does, his brother, does his brother have to marry the widow and raise the offspring for his brother? And we see, and, and the way Matthew does the account is they're trying to entangle Jesus and his words. All right, then you get another question. The next question is, uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And again, Matthew's very clear to get the motivation behind the question that these religious leaders are asking. The last question that he's answered is this one. Which law is the most important? And you see in verse 35 his heart behind it, don't you? Verse 35, it says, he asked him a question to test him. And this test is meant to expose Jesus, some inadequacy in Jesus. The test is meant to put Jesus under pressure. He's trying to corner Jesus. This lawyer is in on a scheme with all these other religious leaders that are trying to entangle Jesus in his word so that they might have evidence against Jesus, so they might do away with Jesus. But why do they want to do away with Jesus? What's he ever done to them? He's not threatening their family members. He's not threatened death on them, to be violent towards them. Well, the reason that they want to do away with Jesus is because Jesus threatens their autonomy. All these religious leaders, they're the top dogs on the totem pole. Both in the religious life and both in their social life. See, these religious leaders, they're in cahoots with the Romans, even though they're Jewish. Because the Romans are preserving their social standing. So they have this social position. But they also have this religious reputation among the Jews because they, they have this supreme intellect and they have this supreme commitment. And Jesus comes along and he's not impressed by their social standing or by their intellect. In fact, what Jesus does is he calls them to submit to him. And it goes over like a ton of bricks. Because the call of Jesus to love God and others is really a, a call of submission. And any time that you've got to submit to somebody else, your desires, your viewpoints, and your opinions, guess who gets displaced? You and me. So for the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' day, their core commitment was to themselves. And this is true for all of us. All of us, at the core of who we are naturally, under the fall, as sinners, our core commitment is to ourselves, but it all looks different for us. For the religious leaders, it was about reputation and power. For the rich young ruler, it was about his money. 
for the man who was at the pool of Siloam, it was about what thing he had to give up was his victim mentality. For the woman at the well, it was her sexuality. So before you distance yourself from the lawyer and say, I would never try to corner Jesus. I love him. He's my friend. I asked him into my heart when I was but a wee lad, when I was a little girl. I'm in ministry for Pete's sake. I would never try to do this to Jesus. Oh, yeah. When's the last time when Jesus was forcing you into submission that you lashed out with a scathing question? See, we will do whatever it takes to not submit to Jesus' call in our life. Because it's going to mean that we get displaced. But God's not giving up on us. He's put eternity into our hearts, which means that our hearts are ravenous. He's given us these infinite appetites for satisfaction. So that no amount of money no amount of power, no amount of accomplishment or freedom or sex is ever going to satisfy you. In fact, if you pursue, pursue any of these or anything outside of God, they're going to just require more from you and deliver less satisfaction to you. They're very, very bad masters. But if you submit to Jesus and you give up on being powerful and right and strong, He's going to satisfy your infinite appetite for satisfaction because he himself is infinite. So, we've seen love defined. Now we've seen love broken. But God hasn't given up on us because he's put eternity into our hearts. But what does rightly ordered love look like? Well, Jesus tells us very plainly, verses 38 and 39. He uses the plainest of language. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I know it's a simple statement. I know if you've been around church a long time, this is nothing that's going to blow your mind as new information. But that doesn't mean that this is easy. We've seen that love's a comprehensive term. So loving God is going to require a radical transformation of the deepest spring of your life, your heart. Loving God is, as we've seen, so much more than emotional attachment. Loving God is so much more than an intellectual activity of just knowing the Bible or Christian doctrine. Loving God is so much more than just a code of behavior. And this comprehensiveness is what makes it so difficult. So some of us, we naturally define loving God as just one of these. For some of us, we just say that loving God is emotional attachment. That's okay. That is an emotional attachment. It is. Just read the book of Psalms. For others of us, we just say it's about uh, the, the life of the mind, that I, I just want to read my Bible and read Christian books and, and know things, and that's really the mark of maturity. Well, it's, it's good. We're challenged to use our minds in our, in, in our Christian lives. That's a good thing. For others of us, we, we define our whole Christian life about how we're doing. How, what are, we obe- are we obeying well? And that's not a bad thing. John 15, after all, Jesus does say to love him is to obey him. But each of these ways of loving God, it's important in and of itself, but it's just too narrow. And if this is the only way we love God, we end up loving God in a very incomplete manner. See, loving God might be familiar territory for you. It might sound simple, but it isn't easy. 
Then you've got the second part of the command. The second part of the command is loving others, loving our neighbor as ourselves. Again, it's simple, but it's not easy. Jesus, the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you don't know it, it's in Luke 10. You can read it later in Luke 10. Uh, Jesus tells this story, and there's a Jewish man who's been beaten. He's been robbed. He's been stripped. He's been uh, uh, left for dead on the side of the road. The first person who passes by is a priest, and he just ignores him. The second person is also a religious professional. The religious professional walks by the beaten man and ignores him. The third person who walks by is a Samaritan. And Samaritan gives him what he needs to make him well again. The Samaritan just simply does for him what he hopes someone would do for him if he was in the same situation. So this whole business of loving people, it sounds familiar. It sounds so familiar, it almost smacks of being trite until you realize what Jesus is really trying to do in Luke chapter 10. See, what he's trying to do is he's telling us a story about not just loving people, but loving people who are different than us. See, Jewish religious leaders, they didn't even love their fellow Jew. But this run-of-the-mill Samaritan did. So in the parable, Jesus is trying to expand our definition of who our neighbors are from those who are easy to love to everyone who is in need, even those who are different than us. Man, that is uncomfortable. But you know Jesus makes us even more uncomfortable when he calls us to love our enemies, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. So loving our neighbor ends up being this unconditional commitment to people who are different than us and even to those who have hurt us in order to bring that relationship in line with God's intended purposes. So if you thought this whole idea of loving neighbor is easy just because it's familiar, then think again. It's very difficult, I know. But the thing I find most difficult is that love is commanded. I found, at least in myself this week, that I'm so committed to the idea that I'm free to choose love that when I'm commanded to, it just seems odd and even offensive. Because the more freedom I have to choose, this is what I think anyways, the more freedom I have to choose, the better choice I'm, I have. But it just isn't true. If you've ever struggled with an eating disorder, if you've ever struggled with substance abuse, you know that you're not as free as you wish you were. You found out that these habits, they've got such a grip on you that you simply are not free to unchoose things that you want to be free from. See, something radical has to happen to you. If you have an eating disorder, if you're a substance abuser. And the same is true for every single one of us. We are bound to be more committed to our interests than God's or to our neighbor's. Something radical has to happen to us to free us to do what God has commanded. And thank the Lord Jesus Christ, something radical did happen. 1 John 4.19 says that we love because he first loved us. See, Jesus loved you first. You don't get Jesus to love you by starting to love him. And the radical thing about all this is that when we were bound in sin, when we were his enemy, by our very own choosing, Jesus came after us. 
He came to earth. He loved God perfectly, obeying him at every single turn. He loved us to the uttermost by meeting our greatest need, being reconciled to our maker. He did all this when he died for us on the cross. He rose again from the grave, not just to prove that he was God, not to just promise us eternal life with him. He rose again from the grave to empower you and to empower me to love God and our neighbor. And to the extent that this gospel grips your heart will be the extent to which you love your God and your neighbor. The glorious truth of being a Christian is that now, by faith in the risen Christ, we participate in the resurrection life of Jesus with awakened and renewed hearts. So that now, we can love God and we can love others rightly. So friends, let us begin to participate in this life. Let's pray together. Father, would... um, you help us be challenged by what for many of us is so familiar. Uh, Lord, that we would be honest about um, uh, the hope that we have in you. Uh, Lord, that we don't have to love you narrowly. Uh, Lord, that we uh, don't have the power simply to love people who are like us. Uh, But Lord, we have uh, the power through Jesus Christ to uh, love people different than us and uh, even love our enemies. Uh, equip us to do so this week. In Christ's name, amen.